Hello out there, everyone. It is Oliver of Heat Rocks. And just to let you know, the episode you are about to listen to is a rerun of last summer's summer special episode that we recorded with Quetzal. Given the season, we thought it would be apropos to bring this back. And we are going to try to hopefully be able to sneak in one more summer-themed episode before the season is actually out. And if we miss it this year, I think we will try to bring you a suite of summer album selections next year. But nonetheless, we really hope you enjoy this rerun from last year's summer special featuring LA's own Kitsal. <laughs> Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. This is our special summer Heat Rocks episode where we invited a guest or a set of guests, I should say, to join Morgan and I to talk about our favorite summer albums. And for that, we have the dynamic duo behind LA's own Quetzal, Martha Gonzalez and Quetzal Flores. The band's been together for what, 25 years now? Yes, oh 25 my, years. Oh my God. Seven albums to their name, including mm-hmm. last year's The Eternal Get Down. Actually, that sounds like a good summer title right there, The Eternal Get Down. <laughs> and the Grammy-winning 2012 album, Imaginaries. Their socially and politically inspired music draws heavily from the Son Jorocho traditions of Veracruz, but true to a pair of musicians who grew up in Los Angeles, they bring in all manners of other influences, from modern rock to R&B, Afro-Cuban to Brazilian. And I suspect that if there is one area of music that they have some thoughts about, it's music to help cool down or maybe heat up the summer season. Katsal, welcome to this special edition of Heat Rocks. Thank you. Thank you. Let's begin with this. What associations do each of you have between music and summer? For me, summertime has changed over time. Yeah. Right. The meaning of summer. But mm. I think that early on in my life, it was about having a whole lot of time on your hands <laughs> to watch television or, you know, being on the bus, going from, to work back and forth, all that stuff. So I think that music kind of gave you that extra company you needed mm. in those long days. You said that summer's changed, though. So what is it now if that's how it used to be? I feel like um, I don't have the kinds of summers that I remember as a kid. I think they tend to be just as busy. (laughs) So um, I think that music changes for that reason. I think that summer music, I don't really, I think about albums in the year rather than summer times. Interesting. I'm not saying that the concept of this show isn't cool cool and interesting. (laughs) You need to leave. (laughs) But I think that, you know, as a kid, summer and music, I feel like coincided, you know, just sort of makes sense more than as an adult Mm. for me. Yeah, for me, uh, summertime was a time of deep listening to music Mm. since I was a small kid. Uh, And then I I had the great fortune of living really close to Lincoln Park, walking distance from Lincoln Park. And during that time, they used to have the, the big summer concerts there. Right. And so I got to see... El Chicano and War and Malo and and Tower of Power and all these incredible groups that would come through and play these summer jams uh, until someone got stabbed and then uh, they stopped doing those <laughs> concerts. And so, so for me, that's summer was always a time of of like I said, deep listening to live music and and records. Yeah. How about you, Morgan? The same. Summer was a time for listening to music, but uh, mostly because um, growing up we didn't have like access to video games tv wasn't that interesting and so all we had was really music and it just reminds me of being little having uncles that had great sounds Mm. being in the back of the car and that was for me a great uh music education yeah i think anyone who knows me knows that i have long been obsessed with thinking about summer and songs in particular i used to do a summer song series on my blog, Soul Sides, where I would invite um, people, Morgan, I think you contributed, actually a great contribution for you uh, a few years ago, just to ask them about what their favorite summer songs are and really this question of what the relationship is. And through those years, I've tried to unpack my own associations. And I don't know if I have a definitive answer. I think in a lot of ways, what I think about it echoes 
um, things that everyone has said here that it's that partly music does keep you company in those longer hours when you're not in school when, when you have time for deep listening and there's something about summer music which I think what draws what draws my interest is around our ideas of summer are always bound up on some level in in some kind of fantasy right that what we want from summer is never going to be fully realized it's it's a, a season of high expectations and in some cases maybe you get a a tinge of that realized, but but for the most part, summer always ends number one faster than you want it to. And when you look back on it, it never is quite what you perhaps wanted it to be in May. And I think there's something <laughs> that the emotionality that comes with accepting that difference between expectation and reality is what makes what makes music work so well because I think music plays with those kinds of emotions about these contradictions about the things that you aspire to and the things that you fall short of um, so yeah I, I, I keep working this idea every time summer rolls around but it is by far I think my favorite time just to sit and be able to, to listen to music in a way that's not as interrupted as it is during uh, during for especially for us who are teachers during the academic year where we just have a lot more mm. else going on I was going to say the summer always represented to me, you know, you're in between either a breakup or a breakthrough. You're either going through something where, for which you need an album to play on repeat, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, the summer is a defining moment. You're on your way to adolescence or you're on your way to freedom or you're on your way to college. Yes. And so mm-hmm. for, for that matter, you're having a breakthrough. And that's what it reminds me of. Growing up, we didn't have we didn't have playlists. So we didn't listen to a whole bunch of albums. It was always one definitive mm-hmm. album mm-hmm. per car ride. Because <laughs> as I've said many times, black people didn't skip songs. Touch someone's song before time and that was an issue. Oh, yeah. And um, that's how I grew up. I think the transition part is a great observation because to the extent that all of us grew up with summer as being the space between school years, much more that I think than the turn of the year at the end of you know December to, to January, summer is where this transition happens. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, yeah, I think that the idea that you have a soundtrack to score that transition is, is, is really astute. What makes a great summer album? For me, I think it, um, you know, the album that I chose really... When I listen to it, it makes me happy, but I remember listening to to it in a time that I was very, I felt very lonely, and I was missing home and my big community. We were living in Seattle, and so, you know, for me, it's sort of like, I think it depends on the, you know, the person, but for the most part, it does tap into that, that you know, that emotional mm. need, or um, it, sometimes it taps into something you didn't even know you needed, you know. You're not listening to it for any one reason, then you just something about it you're gravitating towards. And I think it's in retrospect when you realize, like, ah, oh, this is how I was feeling, you know. So you may not even know what it's doing for you as you're listening to it, you know, hmm. until much later. Marta, you want to start us off? What did you choose and why? This is a project by, a, well, it's a project. So it's not a group, hmm. it's by a project called Alekuma, hmm. and they're from Colombia. There's two gentlemen that decided to do, you know, they'd love Colombian music from different regions. And they kind of took a, a, they're kind of ethnomusicologists, musician, jazz, Mm. a little, you know. And they got together and they decided to, um, you know, tour the country a little bit and uh, recognize that there were different regional cantaoras or cantadoras, which which means singers. And it's a heavy tradition uh, dominated by women Mm. in the Afro Colombian pantheon, right? And so they have different styles, different ways of, of singing and authorship. And so the this album was really instrumental in getting us through a whole lot of years at Seattle, Washington. Mm. I was in grad school. And I just remember enjoying this album, not just my, myself, but with as a family, but really with my son. Mm. This album would always pick me up and make me feel happy. And, you know, every song had a different, I mean, some songs were even sad, but for the most part, they were, they're always grooving. It was, it's, it's a mixture of jazz um, structures, but also heavy rhythms, Mm. uh, 
traditional Colombian rhythms and and the singers, every one of the women that sang on this album are just prolific, beautiful singers and and holding a deep, deep tradition. There Mm. were intergenerational uh, moments on the album as well. Mm. I can listen to it, like you said, from start to finish, and like I never get tired of it. So this song is called Vola el Pajarito, which means that um, it's about a little bird who flies around. And so it's really up and lively. And this is the first song I remember mm. kind of tapping me into the album itself. Um, and this is the song that my son used to love. Just mm. He's a little two-year-old running around in a circle on the bed. That's great. I would just clap and you sing along and, and he loved it, you know. course this is my first time hearing the album but in preparation for the for the chat I just started going through the songs and I fell in love with Porque Me Pega oh, oh yes Can you break down some of the song, what it's about, what she's saying? Well, she really has a beautiful um, narrative. There's actually a documentary, if anybody's interested in looking at it um, later on YouTube, um, where she talks about, as cantaoras, they really um, document the community, their own experiences. You know, they're, they're kind of charged with that leadership, not just the singing and performing of these songs, but they, they're themselves... Um, right and so she talks about how one time she heard a next door neighbor's child um he must have done something wrong and his mother decided to sort of take a whipping to him right and she was when he was when she was beating him or disciplining him um he would cry he would say why are you hitting me you know por qué me pega means why are you hitting me mm. mama por qué me pega por qué me and she said that there was something in her heart that ached for him because he said it with such, she said, sentimiento and, and like incomprehension of like, why are you putting your hands on me type of thing, you know? Yeah. And she thought it was so sad that she did, next time she decided to sing, that's what she sang. And, you know, and so it's become a very famous cantaora song that, yeah. you know, everybody interprets now and sings. And, and I think it's really beautiful that, you know, rarely do songs document children's lives and their hopes, their fears, their pain. And it, leave it to a cantaora to decide to sort of document this child moment that just mm. that gets us thinking you know as a parent like you know as a frustrated sometimes parent I, I you know these songs make me stop to think like man okay next time I want to yell at my son or you know I need to think about what I'm saying and mm. that you know maybe there's a cantaora next door about to write a song about me <laughs> hell no <laughs> <laughs> Normally, for a normal episode, we would always ask our guests, depending on the album they bring in, if there's a fire track on there. In other words, you know, the definitive hit, the definitive classic off of that album. I'm wondering for this one and for your choice, is there a definitive track on here? Yes. It's called Oyamelo. I like it for two reasons. The kind of uh, uh, trickery that happens with the rhythm. Mm. They start singing in one time signature and the drums come in on another end. So they're singing uh, like on a one and two, um, on four, and the drums come in on a six, eight, kind of. It's where they drop that. It's like, whoa, like you spin. And then it's like, oh, man, the where it lands. The, because it starts with the vocals. And then, 
what it's saying. And again, documenting children's voices, it says, um, mm. Mamita, Mamita, uh, who is my father? Mother, mother, who is my father? And she's like, go out into, she tells her son, go out into the street, start to cry. Whoever stops to console you, that is your father. The heavy grooves, wonderful music, singers, the, the backgrounds are just the harmonies, and then with this deep, these really heavy messages. It sounds like worship music to me. It sounds like very call and response um, to me. Um, sometimes before, um, I've said on this show, probably the whole year that I grew up in church, and so it sounds very call and response before. Like so when I would go see my grandmother in the summer, some of those churches didn't have piano, didn't have, we'd go to these tent revivals, and there would be no accompaniment. So all you had was just the pat of the foot and uh, and the claps and the call and response. So that f- feels very um, very familiar to me. So Morgan, what was your choice? Man, uh, you know, it was tough because, um, as you mentioned, there are some, you know, we could do a bunch of summer albums. But I went with this album, which is celebrating its 26th anniversary, actually, today. Crazy. It came out July the 28th, 1992. Mary J. Blige, What's the 411? Oh, yes. Baby, there's no need to tell you. As far as I can clearly recall, my love has been you don't have to worry at all I'll sacrifice my time I'll make sure you said it's right it has resonance uh, with me because of the time it came out, the summer of 1992. I had just uh, moved to Atlanta to go to Clark Atlanta University. I was living by myself, and um, I had a three-track CD player. Mm-hmm. And so uh, <laughs> you had to make good choices on that thing. And so I had in that three-track CD player, this one, I had um, a house record called uh, Journey with the Lonely, Little Lewis in the World. And I had um, a gospel album. I had uh, Walter Hawkins' Love Alive. So Mm. that's what I needed to get me through the summer. This will always be precious to me because it is one thing to be the face of a genre. Mm. It is another thing entirely to be the architect of a genre. Mm. Hip-hop soul. Mm -hmm. That's it. And Mary J. Blige will forever be known as the queen of hip-hop soul. Mm. Heretofore, we didn't know singers like Mary. There's like 1991 BM, which is before Mary. And then there's, (laughs) right, 1992. It wasn't just that Mary bought this album. Mary bought the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, every black girl knew another black girl named Mary. <laughs> so <laughs> visibility isn't just import- important when it comes to race and gender. Yeah. It's also important in style. It's important to see yourself. Mm-hmm. And we could all relate to this person. This sort of soul singing was new. People didn't sing soul music in backwards baseball caps and knee pads and cross colors. But Mary did. Mm-hmm. And so... This will always be precious to me because it was a new style of soul. I wasn't used to to wanting to dance to soul. I wasn't used to our soul singers ha- also having bars because mm. what's the 411? Mary's rapping throughout that thing, Mary and mm. Grand Pooba. Mm. So I picked this because of the danceability of it, mm-hmm. because of the thing I mentioned before, that it's uh, connected to a memory, my time in the house, not having any friends yet, and all I had was my music. And uh, shout out to Mary for being uh, the homegirl that I didn't know that I needed and keeping me uh, <laughs> not mm-hmm. awash in, in, in loneliness and isolation. Yeah. And also because it's been 26 years, but I think we, we cannot separate the contribution of Mary J. Blige to the culture. And we also can't separate uh, Puff Daddy. Mm-hmm. 
because mm. he had an ear for the streets. Mm-hmm. Uptown was full of stars, and they all bought this thing. We stepped right out of New Jack Swing mm. into this. Jodeci, Heavy D, mm. Mary J. Blige, Soul For Real. When he says he invented the remix, he did. We can't take that away from him. And uh, we were patient with Mary. She was rough around the edges, personally, and her vocals were rough around the edges. Mm-hmm. Right, right. We didn't mm-hmm. expect them to be pristine, and we didn't need them to be pristine. Mm-hmm. And she bought a whole uh, new, she ushered in a whole new generation of soul music. What's the 411 to me still holds up. Um, reminisce, come on, is a jam. We I even let her make it on Sweet Thing, and I'm a Shaka devotee. Mm, but I was yeah. like, okay, girl, you know I, what? I'm going to let you make it on this. I thought she <laughs> yeah. did a really good job with Sweet Thing. And normally yeah. I would say stay away from Shaka Khan yeah. to yeah. anybody. Yeah. Yes, but yes. it may be because I don't think I'd ever heard the original version. And I, So Mary was my introduction to the song, and it wasn't until later that I heard the OG. So maybe if it had gone the other direction, I would have considered more sacrilegious. But I thought yeah. Mary did a real nice really job. Really good job. Yeah. I will love you anyway, even if you cannot stay. I think you are the one for me. Here is where you want to be. I just won't set I think the important thing, and it's really hard to consider this if you didn't grow up listening to what R&B sounded like pre-Mary and post-Mary. Because mm-hmm. there were certainly R&B artists in 1991 playing with hip-hop and more in the New Jack swing style, as, mm-hmm. as you were saying a moment ago, Morgan. But I remember when this album first came out, it wasn't just the sound of it. It wasn't just the fact that she proclaimed herself the queen of hip-hop soul. That in itself was mm. a bold claim because no one had even bothered to mm. consider it a genre. But it's also who she had with her. And you mentioned, for example, the title track, What's the 411? It's her and Poobah who was at the top of his game at the yeah. time. What's the 411, honey? What's the 411, I mean, it is so street from the time, <laughs> from the opening track, Leave a Message, which mm. is... I mean, we ask sometimes, you know, is this ahead of its time? Well, well this is of the moment because mm. people don't listen to voicemail anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so listen. But in 1992, everything was about your voicemail. Every yeah. message ended with mm-hmm. peace, you know. And it was everybody on there, CL Smooth. Right. It was a who's who. This wasn't Mary's first recording. She came in with with Father MC and mm-hmm. uh, If You Do For Me and stuff. So we had we had a little bit of a hint. Right. But this was Mary. This felt like it was R&B for hip-hop heads. And I think that's Absolutely. the biggest difference mm-hmm. between the R&B mm-hmm. hip-hop crossovers that existed just a year or two before this is Absolutely. because that felt like, yeah, you're kind of trying to have it both. It didn't feel organic in the way that what's the 411? It's like, mm. oh, shit, she's sort of one of us in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And she stayed true to that. I think a classic hip-hop moment involving Mary is uh, is Mary J and, and, and Method Man 
You're all I need to get by. Speaking of covers. Mm. Man, their take on Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. And I got mad love to give you, my nigga. Was that sacrilegious to be covering Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell? I don't think so. Mm. I don't think so. Um, it made sense generationally. Mm. Um, I think the concept is, is cool. I mean, certainly methods, interpretation of your all I need is different. But I think... To say the least. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you feel me? But I think um, it, it was good to marry the generations. I mean, those kids didn't grow up with Motown, so they wouldn't have remembered it. Mm. Mm. And it was like him saying, I'll, I'll hold you down. And, and I thought I thought it was good. It's It's... It's classic, and I've wanted to place that in a project since then. Just and, can't afford it. And also, again, another sign or another example of Puffy's genius. Mm-hmm. Who, mm-hmm. I, I, it's hard to say that he doesn't get enough credit, if only because it, he gets a lot of credit. So it's not like <laughs> it's not like he's some obscure figure that no one's ever recognized. Sure. But really, you think about him thinking through: what if I had these two people? You know, Method Man at the top of the Woo's popularity. Let me have them cover this massive hit song by Marvin Gaye. Tammy Terrell from a generation ago and have it blow up in the way that it did. I don't think on paper it would have automatically made sense, but on record, oh my God, that made sense. Right. Yeah. Well, I think they don't really think about him as somebody who's musical and he, yeah. he has a track record in showing that he is. Great voice. Gets it. Yeah. He gets it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think we would have had the term ghetto fabulous <laughs> had it not been for Diddy. Not only did he invent the remix, but he, he invented that, yeah, yeah, you know, that's right. that slang. So, so shout out to, uh, to an album that I think 20 F 26 years later, uh, still, still goes hard. So Morgan, is there a definitive jam summer jam off of what's the four one one? You know, that's a tough question. My gut says reminisce. Mm-hmm. Because of the way it, it flows. Mm. Um, but if loving you is all that I have to do, I think is the quintessential. Because it says mm. a lot about Mary and what was going on in Mary's life. And a theme that we would see over and over again. This this gut-wrenching sharing. And I think to define um, the genre and to define Mary J. Blige, you got to listen to that song first before you go anywhere else. And every We will be back with more of our conversation about summer heat rocks with the founding members of Quetzal. But first, a brief word from some of our sibling podcasts here on Max Fun. Keep it locked. And we are back talking about quintessential summer gems with Quetzal on Heat Rocks. So, Gutsal, what was your pick for the, def- not maybe not definitive, but what is your personal pick yeah. for a great summer album? So, you know, I, I had to kind of think about it really hard because there's so many amazing summers and amazing albums. And I thought about, you know, like, what was the, what, what was one that would be different from the ones you all are picking? And, uh, and so I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with one of my favorite groups, uh, when a group that really had a lot of influence on how I developed as a musician, and that's the Smiths. Mm. And it, this album, uh, <laughs> Louder Than Bombs, it wasn't released in the summer, but it was my summer album. It was released at the end of March. Yes. And by when summertime came, I, I was deep in it and digging into it. And this is the same summer where I got my first electric guitar. And so... You're just trying to play Johnny Marr licks the whole time, right? And, which is very hard. Yes. And Johnny Marr is an amazing guitar player, very underrated guitar player, who developed what some people call the guitar orchestra. Right, and so he he would layer all these tracks of guitars and create mm. this, these incredible sounds with these different guitars and whatnot. And so, and at this time, you know, um, I was deep into soul and R and B and and early hip hop, but my brother went to a boarding school in Rhode Island, and so one summer he came back with all this strange music, right? And one of those albums was the Smiths' Hat Full of Hollow. Mm. And and so he said, "You need to check this out," mm. you know, because he knew I was a lyric geek too. Because I would just sit with the albums and, and read the lyrics off of the the sleeve, you know. And so I started listening, and and I got really into them. And so by the time this album came out, I was I was really 
sort of you're ready for it peaked by them yeah and yeah. And, uh, and the only way he got those because at the time they were only imports uh, until louder than bombs came out and then uh, or actually uh, the queen is dead before that but he, so his friends would go on something called holiday right <laughs> and so they would come back with this music from europe oh. and so then he would get these imports they would bring stuff for him and then he would bring them home and give them to me and so I got like an early Depeche Mode album. Mm-hmm. I got a bunch of early Cure stuff. Yeah. And so I was I was listening to all this stuff. And so Louder Than Bombs was that moment where where those that sort of introduction to that, and then me wanting to be a musician, wanting to play guitar, kind of came together. So listening to this album in particular, you know, I came across the fourth song of the album, which is Shoplifters of the World Unite. Yeah. <laughs> and so That's a gem. Yeah, my parents <laughs> my parents were were communists, you know. I grew up in a communist household and so uh it, it, one of the first books I read was was the the red book, you know, and Workers of the World Unite it was 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 a quote that I really remembered. Yeah. And so when I read this and I was like, what the hell is he talking about, right? And so it was it was Morrissey's way of talking about the, the the people who get pushed out, the people who are like strange and and you know considered outcasts, social outcasts, and you know, and like having calling these people into action and and taking over the world and making the world strange and mm-hmm. making the world you know effectively livable for everybody. It's funny because when you had sent in your album pick to us a few days ago, I did I did have to laugh a bit because <laughs> at this point, and I, I don't know how many people nationally know this, maybe if you've watched Ant-Man and the Wasp because there is a Chicano joke about Morrissey in there, uh-huh. but I think for people who know anything about sort of the history or just the community of Chicano and Chicano <laughs> listeners in LA, the Morrissey-Smith connection is so deep and it's very Heavy. confusing to people outside of it, but... Yeah, again, I don't. I, I, I hesitate to even call it insider knowledge, only because I feel like everyone should know this by this point. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, again, I had to laugh when you picked it because, like, of course, like some like someone who grew up on the east side of Los Angeles is going to pick the Smiths, you know, yeah. the, the Chicano kids. So. It's funny you say that because this is before that phenomena. This is way before that phenomena. Yeah, you uh, were an early adopter. I was. I w- and I'm proud of it. I'm really <laughs> proud of it because once once Morrissey got, you know a little bit too popular yeah. with with this community right. i, I kind of was like ah, it was it was uncomfortable right. for me yeah. you, know? you liked his early stuff i i did <laughs> i did like his early stuff and but if you go to a morrissey concert and i'm i'm not necessarily just a morrissey fan i'm a right. smith yes. fan that's big, a big important th- distinction yeah yes yeah and so but if you go to a morrissey concert in, in los angeles you see the most amazing things you see what appears to be hardened gang members yeah. men together holding hands kissing you know you see a lot of queer community. You see a lot of, of brown people, you know, uh, you and you hear him interacting with folks in this way that most artists don't interact. He he understands something and they understand something about him and there's this connection and so it's kinda of beautiful. But I'm a Smith fan. Yeah. So for once in my life let me get what I want. Lord knows it would be the first time Lord knows A moment ago you were making this distinction between being a Smiths fan being, versus being a Morrissey fan. And I did discover both groups uh, as a kid growing, growing up in L.A. myself listening to K-Rock. But while I heard Smith songs... I didn't really get into anything from that general group really until Morrissey's Viva Hate, which was his first solo album, and specifically Suede Head and Every Day is Like Sunday, which to me are these Proustian songs that just take me back to whatever that's, you know, that year of 88 or 89. What's the distinction between loving Morrissey versus loving the Smiths? Is it just sort of the, the, the what Johnny Marr and the other band members in the Smiths brought to it? Or is there also a, a shift maybe in some of the content around Morrissey's lyrics? I think it, it is. It's that it's that tension between those two things that was so 
well balanced and and leveled that Johnny Marr and and, and Morrissey had. Mm. Um, once you get to Viva Hate, he still has some of that, and you can hear it like in Mar- Margaret on a guillotine, mm. Margaret Thatcher on a mm. guillotine, right? He says, "The kind people have a wonderful dream." Margaret on a guillotine. Mm. You know, Subtle. when will you die? That's the question. The chorus says, "When will you die? When will you die?" You know, and then, uh, and then he says, "People, people do not shelter this dream. Make it real. Make the dream real." You know, so he didn't put, he didn't hold back, um, like maybe he has shifted in, in later years. Oh yeah, sure. But it's that early sort of like post-punk, like you know, really intentional, fearless thing that that they had and mm, and mm. then you know johnny marr leaves the smiths because he's not going to go through being a star he's like hell no i want to be a human being i want to be a musician mm. I'm, a, I'm a guitar player mm, mm. and i'm i'm a composer and i'm this and that i'm not a rock star and i'm i'm leaving this group at this moment where they're about to yeah right they're going to become what you two became mm-hmm. they're going to become what what those groups became and, and he refused to go through that I like it here, can I stay? Do you have a vacancy for a back scrubber? She was left behind and sad. What is the definitive jam off of here for you? Um, I'm going to say the definitive jam for me, and it's really complicated. Ooh. It's really, it's not, we it's like not, complicated. It's not clean. Okay. And <laughs> no, you have to pick one yeah. song. Yeah, it's no. not clean. No, no, no. I'm saying this song is not clean. Okay, okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, right. And that's okay. Panic. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And the chorus says... the one hand there's a critique on this this sort of culture that that's shifting in England at the time that's occupying this space and sort of transitioning people from live music and and real instruments into this other space right and the dj becoming the new band right and then it says cuz the music that they constantly play it says nothing to be about my life right the complication is that there's a huge influx of Afro-diasporic uh, cultures coming into London right at this time. Moment. Yeah, and yeah. particularly the Jamaican DJ is mm. is part of that mm-hmm. network mm-hmm. and part of that culture. Man, I never thought about this. This yes. is complicated. It's very complicated. Mm-hmm. I feel guilty for liking Panic, <laughs> <laughs> right? And so, so on the one hand, I was like, yes, like I was feeling it because. All my friends were starting to listen to like, you know, even Depeche Mode. I was kind of turned off by them because I was like, mm, like too you German. Know, a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of blokes standing there playing keyboards, you know, or like pressing <laughs> buttons and you know, and then singing. Maybe a couple guys of the band singing. I'm not into that. I want to hear. I want to see a guy play guitar. I want to see a guy playing drums. Like you know, yeah. I want to see real musicians. I want to feel that. And so, um, so when when I heard Panic, I was like, yes, you know. But then you start to think about what it is, and, and it gets very complicated. Panic on the streets of London. Panic on the streets of Birmingham. I wonder to myself, could life ever be sane again? The lead side streets that just slip down. I wonder to myself. Either of you, well, you said that you were not, you did not sit. You did not grow up sitting with the Smiths. Not really. Yeah. And uh, my introduction to the Smiths was, we talked about the Smiths in, when we did the Pretty in Pink episode. Right, right, yeah. Um, and then when I became a vegetarian, one of my homegirls was like, well, you got to hear Meat is Murder. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute now. Well, that was the wait album I was going to choose. That was the original album I was going to uh-huh. choose. But I was like, mm, let me go with with. This one, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that was my my yeah. second second introduction. To <laughs> How about you, Martha? The Smiths. Yeah. No, yeah. I was. Um, it's not till I really met Ketzal that he's like checked that he'd play the music. I'd be like, Why are you listening to these white boys? <laughs> you like white boy music? What's up with that? And he's like, What? This is so Chicano, dude. This is so Chicano. And we'd have this constant battle of whether it was Chicano or white, and to me, it was all white. <laughs> and the kids that listened to that shit, I was like, they're trying to be white. 
And I was more into black music. I was into Shaka Khan. I was into, you know, uh, Rufus before that. You know, I mean, I'm it was so uh, much insights into your relationship <laughs> right here. This is deep. Man. No, but the I thing was, is that I could go there, too. Yeah. It's true. It's yeah. true. And actually, he turned me on to like deep Stevie Wonder. Mm. Like so inner visions. We'd, you know, we'd, you know, just lay there and listen to the, all of his albums from start to finish, you know, and Jimi Hendrix. He turned me on to Jimi Hendrix, you know. Electric Ladyland, start mm. to finish, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, all that stuff, and it was like, wow. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh yeah, Earth, Wind, and Fire too. <laughs> Tower you know, of Power. But I was always, you know, but I was into like, you know, Lisa Lisa Cult Jam. Oh yes, yes. You know, I was. It was all. It was all about the freestyle movement in East LA. Mini trucks, cha chas, you know, all that stuff. That was kind of my world. I also just love. I mean, all four of us here grew up in LA in the 1980s, right? Yep. And that we were all listening to <laughs> in its own way a distinct pockets of music that all coexisted and were incredible, but not necessarily crossing over in this big pot all at once. Like we could kind of pick our lanes and then get introduced to new lanes. Yeah. My pick was from uh, relatively recent 2015, another March album. And I have a theory about this. I'll I'll bring up in a second, but it is to pimp a butterfly by one Kendrick Lamar. Mm -hmm. Thank God for rap. I would say it got me a pack, but what's better than that? The fact it brought me back home. As I was alluding to earlier, picking an album for this episode was much harder than I thought because I realized so much of my thoughts around summer music. And again, I think about it a lot, but it's always about songs. It's not about albums. And so I couldn't just pick, for me at least, something that I associated with summer. I had to give it a time and place. And because my memory's terrible, I could only draw upon the last few years. But this was an album, and this goes back to what I was also saying about summer albums for me need to be end-to-end. And To Pimp a Butterfly is the last album that I needed to hear. Every time I sat with it for the first, I don't know, 20 times, I, I had to start the beginning. I had to take it through all the way to the end. And I didn't want to jump around. And I can't necessarily explain to you why I f- felt so compelled to have this very linear sequence listening experience with this album as opposed to other very fine albums that have come out since then. But there was something about To Pimp a Butterfly, partly because it is so much conceived and executed as an album, not as a collection of songs, but as a, a, a project in and of itself, you know, a concept album, as, as we would describe, yeah. that, you know, even though it came out in March, I think in a lot of ways it became the soundtrack for my summer because I had that lead up of two to three months to, to, to sample into it and really fall in love with it and really get deep into it in a way that if it had dropped in June, I may not have had that moment until technically summer was over. So in a lot of ways, I think that some of the best summer albums actually come out in the spring because you need some time to be able to sit with it and have that deep listening and then get into it. Ask where the hoes at to impress me. Ask where the money bags to impress me. Say you got the burning stash to impress me. It's all in your head, home. Ask where the plug at to impress me. Ask where the jug at to impress me. Ask where it's at only upsets me. You sound like the feds on me. You ain't got to... Listening to this album again, and um, offline, Marta was talking about just how great the cover is. And mm. you think about that moment in 2015 where we're, you know, we were a year away from having to even imagine the possibility of a President <laughs> Trump. Jesus. And that the, what we considered to be the pressing national matters at the time now feels like a lifetime away. And to have an album that features, and again, if you're not familiar with it, you know, the, the background is the White House and then all of these black bodies and black faces in front of it. You would read that differently now, maybe even more defiantly now. But even in 2015, it meant something and it meant something very powerful. But because that political moment feels less despairing, I suppose, in some ways then, I mean, there's there's kind of this new added nostalgia with this album that I would not have associated at the time, but really comes through and anchors to me why it was such an important listen to me in that summer of 2015, driving around L.A., listening to the, you know, who's now become mm. the definitive Los Angeles artist. And Damn is a mm-hmm. great album. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, I think Good Kid, Mad City as time will go by, will be recognized as the absolute classic mm-hmm. in a way that maybe to pimp is going to feel more dated in some ways. 
But all of that said, To Pimp a Butterfly is still my favorite Kendrick album and is something that on just an emotional, special meaning has some kind of resonance for me that I'm still trying to think through what exactly that is. Mm. A lot of it is really just in the music and the ambition of combining everything from your, you know, the album opens with a touch of P-Funk. Yeah. Then you have all the brain feeder stuff coming in from uh, Flying Lotus and that that school of LA production to mm-hmm. all of the really almost 90s soul loop type stuff that, that is there. With Layla Hathaway. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have what would be the heat rock off of this album, which would become the anthem for that summer and really the anthem, I think, of the last three years, which is all right. I'm fucked up, homie, you fucked up, but if God got us, then we go be all right. so interesting listening back to that song because you forget for a moment that that's Pharrell on the chorus. Yeah. And uh, mm. Pharrell on a song that ends up being the anthem for civil uh, rights activism, uh, millennial activism, discourse, um, that it kept showing up in the clips of protest marches about yeah. Ferguson. Yeah. When you mentioned mm. To Pimp a Butterfly being a concept album, it is a concept album for me because it's an album to me about revolution. Mm. Um, the songs that stay with me beyond All Right are Complexion and King Kunta. Yeah. And so mm. while I love Dam and I love Good Kid, Mad City, this will always be precious to me mm. because this is where... Kendrick Lamar steps out of being a representative for Los Angeles Mm -hmm. to the elder statesman Mm. of rap in Los Angeles. Mm. Mm. And the voice that all the complaints about, why aren't rappers really saying this and then Dead Mm -hmm. it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. But your flood can be misunderstood. War telling me they're full of pain resentment. Need someone to live in them just to relieve tension. Me, I'm just a tenant. And you brought up a very good point, how they were able to put all these people together. It's almost like a it's a, it's a surplus of talent. It's it's Thundercat and it's the Isley brothers are on here, mm. Ron Isley. And then you have Pharrell. Pharrell. Soundwave is on here. Yeah. I mm. mean, it, it is one of those albums. I was at the Grammys when he did his performance, when he opened. And I remember thinking, Take all this in, but remember this moment. Not just remember his performance, but remember that you're seeing a black man um, doing a performance in chains. Mm. You know, what this is saying, there are so many themes here. And so it is, if this hadn't come up on, you know, in this show, I I would have hoped that it would have been someone's heat rock because there's a lot to unpack here. Um, But it will always be wedded to the memory of Ferguson, Mm -hmm. of Sandra Bland, of all those Mm -hmm. things that make this album a concept about revolution and activism. I I feel like this is also the toolkit to how to liberate hip-hop. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Say more. What do you mean? Well, I mean, hip-hop, let's be real, it became stagnant. It became co-opted. It became, you know, uh, something that was more about buying and selling than it was about saying something. Mm. So I feel like this is sort of, sort of like something like a, a, a Coltrane record, you know, when he starts just mm. to, to explore more and expand and just really go out there and and liberate himself and at the same time express the the uh, liberatory nature of what the community is feeling at this moment, you know. I've been through a whole lot. Tried tribulation, but I know God. The devil wanna put me in a bow tie. Played at the holy water, don't go try. Yeah, yeah. As I look around me, so many motherfuckers wanna down me. But in a meek, never drown me. In front of a dirty double mirror, they found me. That will do it for this episode. Special Summer Heat Rocks episode of Heat Rocks. Want to thank our guests, Katsal. What are you all working on right now? Just finished recording an album. Oh, right. Summer album. Mm. <laughs> Summer album. For 2019? Or no, for this? When, when is it going to come out? It'll come out in 2019. Okay. Yes. It's right. another Smithsonian Folkways release. That's awesome. It's called Puentes Sonoros, which means sonic bridges. Mm. And, so, and this is the first album where we actually wrote in the Son Harocho tradition. Mm. 
Yeah, we, we're not. It's all acoustic. We're not using. I'm not mm. plugging my stuff in. There's no drum set. It's, it's all unplugged. <laughs> <laughs> the OG unplugged. Yes. And where can folks find information on you all in the group online? Facebook, Quetzal East LA. Uh, Twitter is the same handle. Mm, or Quetzal uh, East LA dot org. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Good to see you, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. Hey, this is producer Christian, just coming in with a quick tease for next week's episode. It's Mark Frosty McNeil from Dub Lab talking about Nina Simone's It Is Finished. She's she's frayed at the edges. Yes. You know, and it's, you know, she famously, her, her husband and manager, Andy Stroud, was very abusive yeah. to her. But also one of her greatest champions is one of these things. I mean, we're we've got I can Tina Turner covered right. in yeah. the set here, mm-hmm. and it's this sort of duality. But Andy Stroud, who was the he made her dream of playing at Carnegie Hall come true. She wanted to do it, wasn't happening. Nobody believed in her. He took his pension from the New York City Police Department, and he paid for that concert to happen. And he was managing her and also kind of controlling, keeping some of the demons at bay. Yeah. Her alcoholism spiraled out of control. You know, she was having a harder time after that, but she also was free of him. So it's, again, this kind of duality. And I think with this record, you're seeing and feeling the duality that was within her. There's this uh, this. Uh, quote that she gave that I always love about the live experience. Her goal was to shake people up so bad that when they leave a nightclub where I performed, I just want them to be in pieces. Mm. And she does it. Even on record, you're in pieces. You hear a song like Mr. Bojangles and afterwards you're all jangly and jingly and falling apart. But she was also falling apart in a way maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned audience supported